So open your Bibles if you would. I'm always told to wait till all the adults come back, but some of them don't come back, so I'm really not sure what to do because it's more fun that way, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, continuing in our, our study of Paul's letters. And again, uh, we've got some, some visitors here this morning, so we'll take a few minutes and kind of recap some things. Uh, it's an especially valuable letter for us to study, the Corinthian, both of the Corinthian letters, uh, because I mean, all of God's Word is valuable. I don't want you to disparage any part of it, but the Corinthian situation is so much like ours. Very pluralistic society, a lot of competing ideas, a lot of things out there for people to choose from what they want to believe. Um, a very materialistic society. It was a very wealthy society like us in that way. But at the same time, it's a very challenging letter because, and I know that those of you that have been in reach week are probably going to say it again. Yeah, I'm going to say it again. We have the answers. We have the answers, but not the questions, because the questions came from Corinth, and we don't know what they were. And that's especially significant in this chapter, because Paul is clearly answering some very specific things the Corinthians had to say. So we have to put some effort into kind of reconstructing that. It's challenging, um, but it's worth, it's worth the effort. Before we get to this morning's text, though, I want to make a few comments about last week and make sure we're really clear on what chapter 8 was about. It was, of course, about the divisions and the factions in the church. That's what the entire letter is about. Paul responding to the many divisions in the church. And in chapter 8, he happens to be talking about the divisions that occurred over the issue of eating meat. And you say, well, why is that an issue? It was because of all the pagan temples that were there, and much of the meat sold in the meat market had been sacrificed in the pagan temples, and that quite reasonably caused a huge question for a lot of people. And so there were different opinions in the Corinthian church. Right? Now, the mere existence of different opinions isn't the problem. The problem was the divisions that were happening in the church because of the differing opinions. Some were eating meat like didn't make any difference. Some were not eating meat at all. Some were being careful to eat some meat but not other meat. Again, that's all fine. But then there was division in the church because of those differing views. And that's what Paul is addressing. Paul's always interested in the conflict in the church more than the issues. The issues are real, but the conflict and the division in the church was always what he spoke to because the integrity of the church was his priority. That the church be seen and exist as a integrous whole. So, in, in doing that, if you recall, what, what Paul did in that, in that last chapter was set into opposition not the different views, but the different motives. He didn't say, I'm going to talk to the meat eaters now and the non-meat eaters. He said, I'm going, to, I'm going to talk about those who are motivated out of love and those who are motivated out of knowledge. And he said, those who are motivated out of knowledge, that results in what? Pride, arrogance, being puffed up. We talked about that being the same word as the, like the puffer fish, right? Okay, Phil. And when he puffs up, he becomes what? More toxic, right? So knowledge-based Practices, Paul says, leads us in a place of being toxic, right? Whereas love builds up. And what's so significant about that, I know we touched on this last week, but it really needs to be repeated. What Paul focuses on is the end result. You know, when we compare somebody that's acting out of love or acting out of an arrogant knowledge, you know, basis, it's not necessarily the tone of the voice. It's what the end result is. It's not how we express ourselves, but where does it leave the body? Is the body built up? Or is the body contaminated by toxins? 
That's the mark that Paul uses to describe which one of those two uh, places a person is coming from. So Paul speaks to that, and then he adds the whole issue of the weaker brother and accommodating the weaker brother, that one that is weaker in faith. And again, somebody acting out of love is going to be quicker to accommodate the person in weaker faith. And the priority he brings us to is the issue of conscience, and that's the underlying issue in that whole eighth chapter. Paul telling the believers in Corinth, you've got to be prepared to accommodate the Christian brother or the Christian sister whose conscience is a little bit weaker, they're not sure what they should do, and if you lead them into acting in a way that violates their conscience, you've sinned against Christ. So it's pretty heavy-duty stuff in that eighth chapter, and it leaves a question. It leaves a question in people's mind, especially people who might have been tempted to disagree with Paul, uh, and the question likely went something like this. So, Paul, who are you? Remember, we're talking about issues of conscience. Which way, do I, which way do I go here? We're not talking about simple statements of doctrine in that eighth chapter. We're not talking about issues that have clear black and white answers in that eighth chapter. Paul was talking about issues where, should I do this or should I do that? I have the right to do this, but I've got a weaker brother that maybe I should have. How do I make this choice in this matter? Right? It's a matter of conscience. And Paul lays down some pretty stern direction. He says, if you make the choice wrong, you sin against Christ. That's heavy-duty stuff. So evidently, some of the reaction, again, we have to kind of recreate that question because all we have is the answer, was, so Paul, who are you to tell me how to live? I mean, it'd be one thing if we were talking doctrine because you're Paul the Apostle. I might understand that. But who are you to tell me how to live? It's actually a fairly reasonable question, and one that Paul is absolutely prepared to answer. And that brings us to chapter 9. So, having said all that, let's get to the text. Chapter 9, beginning in the first verse, here's Paul's answer to those who ask him, who are you? Verse 1, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, as we look to this chapter in this marvelous letter that speaks so much to us, Father, we pray you'd help us open our understanding to your word and what is said and what is heard. It be by the direction of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, Paul's authority and his apostleship is being questioned by at least some people in Corinth. And in this chapter, he defends it. And he doesn't defend it because he's worried about his reputation or he's worried about his status. He's defending it because the situation in Corinth demands that he defend it. There's a situation there that he needs to respond to. And what stands out in this passage, and I really think it's of such great value to us, is the fact that the Apostle Paul is always thinking to the issue of what is at stake. No matter what the issue is, no matter what the question is, if it's eating meat or if it's something else, he's always asking the question, what's at stake here? What is there to gain and what is there to lose for the church, the body? That's always where Paul is going, all right? It's always his priority. So what I'd like to do this morning to help us 
you know, work through this is first take a quick overview of the chapter and then look at the real critical parts of it until we can finally ask how it speaks to us. And um, we'll use that approach. So first of all, an overview uh, of the chapter. And by the way, this is why I say it's, it's, a, it's something of a long chapter, why it's so important for all of us to be reading as we're going through these studies. And, and I know my own practice, and I just suggest this when I'm, you know, when I'm sitting where you're sitting, listening to somebody work through a passage of Scripture uh, in a regular basis like we do, where you know what's going to be talked about the next week. I like to take like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and go back and reread what was said on Sunday. Ask if I can you know, understand what was said, if I agree with what was said, if I have questions, right? And then starting in about Thursday, Friday, start reading the next chapter so I've got a, a basis or a foundation for Sunday. That just helps me. And so I really encourage you to find a system like that. So this isn't like brand new when you hear it on Sunday. Helps an awful lot because uh, we can't always take time you know, to look at every word. So having said that, again, quick overview of the chapter. Uh, the first six verses, Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions. They know the answer to all these questions. Paul says, am I not an apostle? They knew he was an apostle, right? right. Don't I have a, these, uh, certain rights he talks about? We just Yes, they know, they know the answers to all that, and he certainly knows. So these are rhetorical questions he's using to preface where he's going to go with his argument. And all of this is based on what happened back in Acts chapter 18 when Paul first came to Corinth. And if you're familiar with Acts 18, you know that Paul came to Corinth from Athens, and he hadn't had the best time there. You know, we got some really classic doctrinal stuff in that 18th chapter where Paul delivers that incredible speech, you know, to the Areopagus. But what we don't see is a church born out of that. There's no record anywhere in the New Testament of a significant church in Athens. So although Paul did his best, based on what we see of the record, it didn't, have, it didn't, it didn't really soak in. It took a while before we see a church in Athens. So by the time he gets to Corinth, which is just you know, about 20, 30 miles away, he, he's pretty burned out, kind of beat up. And he says early in the letter, we've already read, he says, when I was with you, I was there in fear and weakness and much trembling. Right? He wasn't doing all that great. And so when he got to Corinth, rather than doing the typical Paul thing, which is just to get right at it and start you know, preaching away, he went to work. He went to work. He found Aquila and Priscilla. Those names should ring a bell. They were tent makers. And what that actually means was they were leather workers. So they would make things like tents and anything else made of leather. Paul was trained in that. That was his profession. See, being a Pharisee, being a Pharisee wasn't a job. It was like a, it was like a, a religious identification, almost like not a political party, but you get the idea, right? Being a Pharisee wasn't your job. In fact, to be a Pharisee, unless you were in the absolute upper echelons of the Pharisee community, to be a Pharisee, you were supposed to be married with a family and a job. You were supposed to be in the community working with the people. So for Paul to go to work when he got to Corinth from his Pharisaical background would have been entirely reasonable. All right, But in the Greek community, that wasn't the case. There were traveling itinerant philosophers and teachers and preachers. That was very common in the culture of the first century in the Mediterranean world. But in the Greek and Roman world, those guys always got paid. They always charged. If you, if you heard that a, good, you know, a really, really eloquent philosopher was coming to town or a really good teacher, might be somebody you wanted to listen to, you had to pay to get in. Right? None, none of them did it for free. So it would have been very easy for some in Corinth to take the fact 
that Paul immediately went to work making tents or whatever else he was making out of leather. While he started to minister, it would have been easy for them to begin to look at him in a critical way. And this guy obviously is not the real deal, right? Otherwise, he'd be charging at the door. So that kind of laid the groundwork for the disparaging view of what happened to Paul when he was in Corinth, right? So he came from Athens, he went to work, and then he starts to preach. Now the rest of the first half of this whole chapter, all the way down through verse 18, Paul defends his ministry. And if it sounds really odd, it is. It's really weird to hear Paul talking this way, but he's very clear all the way through verse 18 on this issue of why I didn't charge you all for my preaching. Why I ministered to you without charging. The first thing he makes clear, I could have. I had every, every lawful right to. I could have done that, right? Uh, it was a practical necessity. In verse 7, he talks about the practical necessity of anybody getting paid for his job, right? And then in verses 9 through 13, he talked about the biblical basis under which he could have charged them for what he was doing, right? And then he concludes, I chose not to. And he says this in verse, in verse 12. If others share this right over you, do we not all the more? Meaning the right they have charged, right? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all, we endure all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Paul said, all those things that I could have done, I could have charged it. I could have brought my family along with me. I could have done all the things that these other people do, but I didn't for one reason only. I didn't want it to be a hindrance to the preaching of the gospel. That was always Paul's priority. I will set aside my prerogatives, Paul is making clear, and I did set aside my prerogatives, not because I couldn't, but because I saw in this particular situation I needed to so that the gospel could go forward. And Paul makes his priorities and the reason he did what he did absolutely clear, right? Verse 18, he really makes his point clearly. And again, we're just taking a broad overview of the passage, but we want to get to uh, the, the end of it, which is where he really begins to speak to the Corinthians. In verse 18, he says, What then is my reward, so that when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. I had the right to do it, but I didn't do it. So don't look down your nose at me, Paul is saying, because I didn't charge at the door. I could have, but I didn't, because I had a higher priority in mind than just you know, making a living, which everybody else was doing. I wanted to see the kingdom built in your midst. I chose this way because I saw a reward in it. Now, again, why is Paul saying this? He's saying this because he was just talking in the previous chapter about what? About laying aside our rights, laying aside our privileges, laying aside our prerogatives for the benefit of the kingdom, for the benefit of the weaker brother. Some had a problem with that. And what Paul is making absolutely clear is, I'm not asking anything of you that I haven't done myself, and you've seen me do it. That's why the floor is cement, Right? I'm not asking anything of any of you that I haven't done myself. Paul makes that crystal clear. We'll let them finish. <laughs> Again, that's why the floor is cement.
No pressure. <laughs> Not the first time you made a mess. We've all been there. Thanks. Thank Thanks for getting that. Verse 19 through 27, that's where we want to be able to pay a little more attention, uh, is where Paul turns the issue back to Corinth, right? So let's pick up what he says. Verse 19, For though I am free from all men, I make myself a slave to all, that I might win all the more. And then he offers a series of situational examples of where he has laid aside his right or his prerogative. He says in verse 20, To the Jews I became like a Jew, that I might win more Jews to those under the law as under the law. Was Paul under the law? The Old Testament law? No, he makes it absolutely clear in Galatians he is no longer under the law. He's been, he's been freed from that. But he said, when I'm with Jews, people under the law, that's how I act. I'm willing to do that. I'll give that up because that's what the gospel requires. Verse 21, to those who are without the law, i.e. Gentiles who weren't following the law, as without the law, though not being out with the law, not, not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I win those who are without the law. Verse 22, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I had become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may be a fellow partaker of it. So Paul's made it really clear to anybody, all of this is done with the singular point of making it clear to anybody that was questioning him about his behavior, do not be mistaken. My apostleship is genuine. If it ever looked any other way, it's because I was accommodating you. I voluntarily set aside my prerogatives, right? To the end of the chapter, Paul lays out what's really at stake. And this is where he puts teeth in the thing where we really want to focus. We just read verse 23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel that I may become fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you might win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. We do it an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I buffet my body, make it my slave. Let possibly, after I have preached to others, I myself should be qualified. The positive side of doing it right is that I become a fellow partaker of the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean he might get saved. He's already saved. But when he does it right, he enters into the divine privilege of being a worker in the kingdom. Even as he said of Apollos, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. Think about that for a moment. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. In another place, Paul will say, we are co-workers with Christ. That's good company to be in. We can spend our lives doing the stuff of this world, or we can spend our lives entering into the company of Christ doing His work. And that's for every child of God. That's not just for those who have like a, you know, a ministerial title before their name. That's why every one of us has been called out of darkness into His marvelous light, that we might lead others into that same light. That's what he's talking about. And the negative side of it, Paul suggests, 
is that we might be disqualified, perished of God. So what's at stake? Well, Paul's calling was to preach the gospel. He saw himself in partnership with others, and he pursued that no matter what the cost. Verse 24, he makes this well-known allusion to the games. Now, we just finished the Olympic you know, thing, right? He's not referring to the Olympic games. Right? He's referring to the Ismian games. There were actually four major sets of games in ancient Greece. There were the Olympic games. That was the big one, right? But then there were the Ismian games. That happened a year the Olympics weren't happening. There was the Parthian Games, and there was the Nemean Games. There was games every year. The Greeks and the Romans were both big into games, right? Now, the one thing I will note is three of these four games occurred on the Peloponnesian Peninsula. A little bit of family pride here leaking through, right? Okay. And none of them happened in Athens, okay? Sorry. Okay, but the point, the point was, and there's, there's actually a biblical reason I'm saying that, right? The Ismian games had been under the control of Corinth for like 500 years, and they were quite proud of them. In fact, they wouldn't let anybody from Olympia come to their games. They were very proud of their games, right? They're really big time thing. There was religious connotations to all these things, right? But remember he said the very first week that Rome had conquered Corinth and wiped it out in the middle of the second century BC? Well, when that happened, they took the games away from them. The Romans took the Ismian games away from Corinth and they sent it down the road about 50 miles. Well, only about 10 or 20 years before this letter was written, they got the games back. So this is a really big deal for Corinth, right? I mean, they didn't even give the same trophies that, the Olympi that they gave at the Olympics. And the Olympi Olympics, when you won, you got a wreath of laurel wreaths, right? Not at Corinth, not the Ismian games. You got a wreath of pine. They had to be different, right? Very proud, had to be different. The point being, when Paul points out the games, he's got the Corinthians' attention. He's talking about something that's really important to him, and everything in the passage touches on that, right? And he says, hey, you all want to compete in those games? What do you do? Well, you do it in a way that you win. There's focus to the way you do it. You do it in a way that you will win the prize. You do it according to discipline. You do it according to, there's right ways and there's wrong ways and you do it in a way that doesn't get you disqualified, right? What's Paul talking about? He is something about, he's talking about the way we exercise our rights. He hasn't left that topic. If we want to excel in the kingdom of God, if we want to actually be seen partnering with God rather than partnering with the world, there's right ways and there's wrong ways to do it. There's rules to be followed. There's certain disciplines to be followed. It isn't done, he is saying, casually. When talking about the exercising of our rights, when talking about the exercising of our freedom, you know, the word rights occurs in this chapter, in this, in this chapter of Corinthians, it occurs more than in any other single chapter in Scripture. Paul talks a lot about our rights in this chapter. And in every case, he's showing how he laid aside his rights for the purpose of the gospel. But he does something really fascinating along the way that I think is really critical for us to catch up on. When Paul uses the word right, he doesn't use the word you would normally use. The word you would normally, we've talked about this word in the past, we use the word ziki, ziki. That's related to the idea of righteousness. 
It's related to the idea of that which is proper. And when you're talking about an object, for example, you're talking about the right of ownership, right? What do your kids normally, what's the first thing your kids argue about? It's mine, it's mine, it's mine, right? The first, you know, when you're trying to learn a foreign language and your Chris is already smiling, he knows where this is going, all right? When you're trying to learn a foreign language and you're in an immersion and your kids start conversing in that language, it is such a beautiful moment. And the, the phrase I remember most clearly when Chris and Sophia started arguing in Greek, it was always, Hikimo, it's mine, it's mine. I mean, it's just a foundational word, right? It's mine. It's mine by right. That's the whole point. Kids learn that so quickly. It's mine by right, okay? But that isn't the word Paul uses here. He doesn't use the word Hikimo. He uses the word exousia, which means authority. And it emphasizes a right or a prerogative or a power that is born outside of oneself. We've talked about this before, I know a lot. Authority is a power or an ability. You can do something because of a power or authority that's been given to you from outside. So what authority is. It comes, the word literally means from outside, outside of oneself, all right? So what is Paul saying? All of these rights that I freely gave up in the circumstance at the moment, he's not saying I just walk away from all of them, but every example he gives in this chapter of where he walked away from a right or he set a right aside, he's talking about this idea of exousia. Every time, it's something that was given to him from outside. Now, why is that critical? There is a temptation, and, and I've heard it, especially in the last 18 months as we've talked about all of these issues, to speak of our rights, either as Christians or as citizens, either way, to speak of them in a somewhat disparaging way, as if they didn't matter. That is not consistent with what Paul is saying here. Paul is affirming that the rights that we enjoy, whether they are Christian rights, the rights, the right of access we have, the right to, you know, to make conscious decisions, that's a right, God-given right. All of those are given from God, the rights we enjoy as citizens. Somebody else paid for those in most cases and continues to pay for those. The reason there's a danger in disparaging in any way those rights, if you disparage the right, you also disparage the price that was paid to get it to you. And if you disparage the right, you disparage the price that is paid when that right is set aside. Paul would never do that. He affirms the value of the right in the exact same breath he affirms the necessity of setting it aside. So honor, respect, and esteem the right. Honor and respect the need to set it aside. For what reason? To build the, to build the church, to advance the gospel to minister to the weaker brother who needs you to accommodate them, or the weaker sister. Set aside that right for a purpose. And when we keep that purpose in mind, it makes it possible to do it. The alternative, Paul warns, at the ver very end of the chapter, if I fail to do this, I may be disqualified. I might lose that wreath. He says, we do these things, we surrender the rights that are ours. We do them 
to win a crown that is imperishable. Even, even the greatest of athletes in this world, they receive a crown that was perishable. Again, I said it, at, at the Olympics, they got the, their laurel wreath thing, the leaves fell off, right? I couldn't help but smile when I, when I, when I read some time back that at the Ismian Games, they, um, they gave them a wreath of, of again, pine, pine boughs, pine needles, right? How many here like real Christmas trees? What happens when you keep them too long? The mess they make, you know. And, and who knew, we always, had, we always had spruce, right? We always had spruce, but we always kept it too long. And then we ended up at this precarious place where the needles were just like barely hanging on. And we'd so carefully take it over to the door. And then we'd pull it through the door. And there, it just, I have no idea how many million needles there are on a spruce tree, but they were all in our door. That is what the rewards of this world amount to. Dried, dead Fruit needles. Yeah, lovely. As opposed to, as opposed to an imperishable wreath. And the word he uses is the word Stephanos. It's the crown. It's the victor's crown. That is what Paul says motivates him. That is what should motivate us. So I will, in circumstances, lay aside even those rights that are so precious to me and Paul gives us three really good reasons. Number one, verse 23, that I might be a participant in the gospel. I might find myself in that remarkable place of being a co-laborer with Christ. Number two, that I might receive an imperishable crown. That's verse 25. And number three, that I would not be disqualified. God forbid it. So when the choice comes to me, and I'm dealing with a situation, I'm dealing with a weaker brother, a weaker sister, and it wouldn't matter if it was something like, how do I respond to the latest outbreak of a disease? How I respond to the issue of drinking wine? How I respond to any one of a hundred other issues that we, we speak to all the time? And I'm encountered with a weaker brother or sister, what do I do? I ask the question, how is my behavior going to affect their Christian walk? And if I have the wisdom and the, and the discipline and the strength of the Apostle Paul, I will always say, I will never conduct myself in a way that leads them away from the faith. I count the cost. If there's no cost, I'm probably not doing very much. But when there is a cost, I believe by faith that my labors and my sacrifices have an eternal reward. Father, I thank you for your word, Father. And as we continue to work through this letter, Lord, and, and deal with the issues that Paul deals with, um, I think, Father, it doesn't take too much effort to see ourselves. Um, and it's very easy, Father. It's so easy to get caught up in what we're doing, Lord. That we can look right past that brother or sister that's hurting and might need us just to slow down a little bit and minister to them, Father. Father, we are so quick to uh, lose track of the fact that we are part of the body of Christ. And as Paul makes so clear so many times in this letter, if one part of the body hurts, the entire body hurts. Father, we want to be found those who labor and even sacrifice to the healing and the strengthening of your body. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.